If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Seven hundred years ago this August, Roger Mortimer broke out of the Tower of London and went on to mastermind the deposition of his captor and arch enemy, King Edward II. In today's podcast, Paul Drybra is telling Spencer Mizzen more about Roger's truly remarkable story, arguing that this hugely talented baron could have cemented his status as the most powerful man in England, if only he hadn't let that power go to his head. You've written a feature for our August issue entitled The King of Folly, which tells the story of the rise and dramatic fall of one of the most remarkable figures of 14th century England, and that man is Roger Mortimer. Now, before drilling down into his life in greater detail, I wonder if you could just give our listeners a very brief introduction to Roger Mortimer, because I'm guessing that a few of them won't know a great deal about him. Okay. Well, I mean, I would say actually, not just the 14th century, but I would say Roger Mortimer is possibly one of the most important figures of the Middle Ages in England and actually in in the British Isles altogether. So he's a man probably most famous for entering a relationship, whether we think it's political, sexual or both, with Queen Isabella, who was the queen of King Edward II. They were able to invade England in 1326, engineer the deposition which became an abdication of the king, the first ever deposition abdication of a post-conquest English king. And then they ruled, not formally as regents, but effectively as kind of regents for the teenage king, Edward III. Edward III, of course, being notoriously one of England's most famous and successful kings for his military campaigns in Scotland and France. So Roger himself is a baron, really, of the Welsh marches. So he comes from a a family who go back to doomsday, effectively. Um, Edmund, uh, Roger's father, is often described, you know, he doesn't really enter the historical picture, but he is very important in terms of Roger's positioning and his subsequent career. 
in, the, in 1301, he marries Roger to Joan de Joinville, who is the granddaughter of Geoffrey de Joinville, one of the great sort of cross-channel landholding lords of the uh, 13th century. And that brings him not only the rich sort of town and lordship of Ludlow in Shropshire, but also the liberty of Trim in Meath and Ireland, which is really an important and valuable lordship, which means that Roger ends up having a career that is not simply English, he's not simply based at court, but he spends a lot of time both in his own estates in Wales and the Welsh Marches, but also a lot of time in Ireland. And ultimately he becomes the Royal Lieutenant in Ireland in 1316 to combat Scottish invasion by Edward, the last surviving brother of Robert Bruce. And he successfully addresses some of the issues within English colonial society in, in Ireland. And the ultimate upshot of this is in 1318, after Rogers left Ireland, men that he'd put in place there join local elites and they defeat and kill Edward Bruce, which is one of the few military successes that Edward II could point to during his reign. So Rogers is a very important figure. He's very, very close to Edward II in the first, let's say, half of Edward's reign. Edward, of course, is notoriously one of England's least successful kings, notorious for having favourites, particularly Piers Gaveston and the Dispensers. Why did it go so badly wrong? Where did the rift between Roger and Edward II, this rift would obviously go on to define Roger's life, where did that rift start to develop and why? So, Roger Mortimer in sort of 13, 19, 20, goes back to Ireland again. He serves another period as chief governor. Again, another successful period holding parliaments, bringing the island to not relative peace. And when he leaves in 1320, the community of Dublin basically, you know, praise him for having done great work, thought much of saving and keeping the peace in the words of one petition. However, the reason he comes back is because in Wales and the Welsh marches, Hugh Dispenser the Younger and Hugh Dispenser the Elder, his father, are starting a campaign of acquisitive usurpation of rights that the Welsh marcher lords believe, well, actually, no, it's not just believe, they actually do have these liberties that, that their law runs, not the king's law, in these patchwork of liberties across the borderlands of Wales. So Hugh and Hugh start to use Edward's influence to deprive other lords of their rights, and they're, therefore they're seen as a real threat to a way of life that is not simply a court life. It's something that's developed over two and a half centuries and it's, it's a really important part of their identity, as both as individuals and as a group. So they, in 1321, there's this campaign, military campaign, which basically destroys the dispensers. They get their lands trashed. They are exiled, never to be returned, supposedly, by Parliament. And Edward II has to give up both dispensers, really, in order to save peace. However, Edward, you know, for once in his life actually becomes a lot more militarily astute. There is a campaign basically along the Severn, up from Gloucester all the way up to Shrewsbury in the Welsh Marches. Edward brings a large army with him for once. It's a successful campaign. Not much blood is spilt, but Edward, you know, is able to rally men and there's some skirmishes. And ultimately, there appears to be pressure on the Mortimer lands in the marches from Welsh allies of Edward II, sort of a pincer movement on the lands in the middle marches in Herefordshire and Shropshire. And in sort of in mid-January, negotiations begin for the surrender of Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, our Roger, and his uncle Roger of Chirk, and several of their key retainers and allies, 
And ultimately, I think it's the 22nd, 23rd of January, 1322, they surrender at Shrewsbury and are basically clapped on irons and dragged off to the tower as prisoners. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So the hook for us running the feature in the August issue is that it marks 700 years to the month, actually, since Roger effected an audacious escape from the Tower of London. Can you tell us a bit about that escape and how unprecedented and well-planned was it? It's not unprecedented. There are previous escapes. Obviously, the, the piece I've written for the History magazine does include earlier escapes. This, however, is definitely one of the most daring and almost certainly one of the best planned. So what happens or what appears to happen is... After then Roger and Roger are put in the tower, they are brought on trial in July 1322. There is a big campaign to have them executed. There's a petition from the communities of, of Wales saying, you know, if they're not you know, executed or if they're not punished correctly, then they, the community of Wales, will, will suffer the consequences. Edward II, however, with complete hindsight, this is the worst decision he ever makes, basically says, well, actually, no, these, these chaps have served me loyally, they've surrendered... It's perpetual imprisonment, not execution. So he has the sentence commuted. For whatever reason, a year later, Roger the Younger is made aware that he is going to be executed at some point in the summer of 1323. Now, it could be that because earlier in 1323, there'd been various conspiracies revealed around the prisoners in other royal castles, so in Windsor and Wallingford, there'd been some break-ins to prisons to try to spring other high-profile uh, rebels. They'd not succeeded, but they'd come close to succeeding. And all roads kind of pointed to Roger as the kind of the head of this, this conspiracy. So what appears to have happened is, on the 1st of August, which is the feast of St. Peter ad vincula, St. Peter in chains, where, you know, that the saint is loosed from the chains that Herod puts him in. And St. Peter is the patron saint of the Tower of London. There's this big feast. 
in the tower, all the guards are treated, you know, they all get hammered, effectively. But one of their number, a chap called Gerald Alspeth, or Gerald Alspeth, clearly is the co-conspirator of Roger Mortimer because he drugs the wine. <laughs> One chronicle account, I think, basically says that they're, they're out for two days, such is the strength of the, the poison, the potion that they drink. None of them die, but the, the constable Stephen Seagrave is, you know, he has, you know, a long time to recover. He, you know, he takes a lot, a lot of time. So whatever it was that were in their drink is very potent indeed. Once Gerald appears to have got everybody out of it, he then goes to Roger's cell, which is supposedly in the highest part of the tower. It's not totally clear how he breaks out, whether there's some kind of prizing of the stonework around the, the lock to get it out, or whether there's a key provider, whatever it is, or there's a breach in the wall. We're not quite sure. But Roger escapes, possibly through the, the castle kitchens, using a rope ladder, scales the inner bailey, goes over the wall, then scales the outer bailey. A couple of chaps are waiting for him on the outside, this side of the Thames, they roam across the Thames to waiting horses, and then they, you know, have a helter-skelter ride. Nobody's looking for them at that time, so nobody, nobody knows to look for them. They go to either Portsmouth or Portchester. They board a boat again, this time to the Isle of Wight, where they're expected. And from there, at some point in the next couple of days, they escape to Picardy in France, which is where Roger's mother's relatives um, are based, and they, you know, they take refuge there and start to conspire over the next three years. So now this obviously came as something of a shock to Edward II when he learned that his, his prized prisoner had uh, you know, escaped from the Tower of London. But before looking at that in greater detail, can we talk about Edward II a little bit? Because he's got this reputation as being one of medieval England's weakest and most inept monarchs. I mean, is that reputation justified, in your opinion? You see, this is where you've probably got the wrong person, because I'm a, I'm a massive fan of Edward II. And the fact that he's known as the one of the weakest kings has kind of always motivated me not to rehabilitate him, because he's not a man whose reputation can be rehabilitated in any great degree, but to try and understand a little bit more about what mo- motivated him, what why he might have been so unsuccessful. I mean, ultimately... I think he's a man who is a bit like his father. He doesn't stand on ceremony. He's extremely kind of proud and you know, he's, he's very protective of his own rights, the rights of his crown, royal dignity. But he's also very kind of easily swayed. He appears to be a man who has favourites, who, who doesn't seem to see or have the self-awareness that by having men or women so close to him on whom he's showering gifts or giving access or allowing them to do what they want to do and when complaints are brought, not, you know, not changing his mind or not reprimanding them, that that creates a massive problem for him and, the, you know, what are called the community of the realm. You know, so Edward's popularity as a king, I think he's a man of the people. You know, he was very happy. This is, again, notoriously, he's a man who likes ditching, hedging, swimming, thatching, mechanical arts, they always call it. I think he's a man who would move easily among what you might call the lower levels of society. And that's where I think the problem comes, because he doesn't move as easily amongst the upper echelons of society, all of whom know him better. And they kind of know his foibles, and they know that they probably can't trust him and his decision-making. And of course, he's very unsuccessful in the key 
elements of being a, a, you know, a king of England, which is he's not successful in battle in the way that his father and son were. He's accused of losing Scotland, losing Ireland to, to an extent, and of sowing discord among his own community in England. So now seems an appropriate time to talk about another protagonist in your story, and that's Edward's wife, Queen Isabella, because, I mean, what really added fuel to Roger's rebellion following his escape from the tower was the fact that he teamed up with Isabella, didn't he? Have we got any sense of why Isabella decided to desert her husband in such spectacular style? Yeah, and I think hindsight sometimes makes us think that Isabella was always planning something like this. I think the evidence suggests that until 1322, at least, they were very close. Certainly until 1324-ish, they are, you know, they are a happy married couple. They have four children. Edward is, you know, devoted to his wife and his children, apparently, as well as having, obviously, you know, these these male favourites. Nobody is actually sure, of course, whether the relationship between Edward and Piers is actually sexual at all. There have been several arguments that it's actually more of a kind of a blood brotherhood. They're just very, very close male companions. It's only in 1324-ish when questions about Edward's homage to the King of France, who is Isabella's brother, come up. Edward decides he's going to forfeit the lands of anyone French in the country, so like alien priories and that kind of thing, and Isabella loses her household and some of her maintenance. At that point, presumably... She starts to worry. 1325, there are negotiations over that homage, and Isabella is sent, with the consent of her husband and the King of France, to be the chief English negotiator. It's only when she gets to France and her son is with her, because her son goes over in September 1325, again with Edward II's permission, do things start to change. She obviously starts to meet the exiles in France, one of whom is Roger Mortimer around, and he is the most important baronial opponent still alive of Edward II at that point. And whether they start this exiled court over there in Paris is not totally clear. Around sort of Christmas 1325, things change. Edward II starts getting reports that there is some kind of relationship going on between Isabella and Roger, whether it's sexual at that point, whether it's ever sexual, we're never sure, we can never be sure. But there is a strong implication both by Edward and by chroniclers, later writers, that you know, Roger and, and Isabella start a physical as well as political relationship. Taking the physical out of it, they are very politically well-suited. They are both sort of clearly very good political managers. They've got good military strategy. They've got good propaganda. They've got the right allies. So when it comes to the invasion and the, in um, later 1326... They know that they've neutralised lots of uh, dissent in England, that they will get a decent reception. They won't get, they won't be met by a royal army. And that when they do land, they are going to play on Edward's weaknesses. And it turns out, of course, that they're, they're right. Edward effectively flees before this invading army, trying potentially to get the Wales to raise an army there, trying potentially to escape to Ireland where he might lead an invasion campaign with some Scottish assistance. But actually, all opposition to Isabella and Mortimer when they land peters out. They effectively run what I've, I'm about to publish an article on the what I'm calling the interim administration of Mortimer and Isabella. OK, before chatting about 
their administration, I want to throw quite a thorny question at you, and that relates to the fate of Edward II. Now, we know that Isabella and Roger forced Edward into flight. He was subsequently captured. Obviously, in the subsequent centuries, there's been many competing theories as to what happened to Edward. What's your take on that? Right, well... I am the ultimate fence-sitter on this, <laughs> in that, obviously, the, t- the traditional narrative is that Edward, he's captured in South Wales in November 1326. He's taken into captivity by Henry Earl of Lancaster. He's moved at some point to Barclay Castle in Gloucestershire for less comfortable confinement, we think. On the 21st of September, he is reported to have died. Subsequent accounts, chronicler accounts, and obviously most historians believe that Edward was murdered. Now, the infamous red-hot poker story, I mean, that's clearly fantasy. It's much, you know, to d- d- demean him and his reputation. If he is killed there, he's killed by other means. Suffocation, starvation, whatever it might be. Now, of course, very recently, as you know, and readers of the BBC History magazine will know, there's been much controversy because Ian Mortimer particularly, and subsequently both Catherine Warner and Stephen Spinks, have argued that Edward doesn't die and that actually... The narrative we should actually now follow and is much safer on the evidence that we have is that Edward II actually lives. He's kept in sort of confinement, moved around, and then somehow escapes and lives out a life on the continent before dying in the early 1340s. Those historians working in an academic environment who've written on this tend to believe that the safest interpretation is that Edward does, in fact, die in September 1327. Ian and others believe that that's no longer the safest interpretation. I find it difficult, ultimately, to deviate from the the traditional narrative, not because the, the new interpretation doesn't have much to commend it, but because neither is conclusive. There isn't sufficient evidence yet discovered, particularly on the continent. And who knows, there may well be a killer piece of evidence out there somewhere that proves it either way. There is a letter, which is in Warwickshire County Record Office, purportedly from Archbishop William Melton to a London merchant, the Mayor of London, Simon Swanland, in January 1330, which suggests that he knows and is sure that Edward II is still alive and is in a safe place of his choosing. Now, that could be interpreted as the killer piece of evidence. But the trail goes cold at that point. There is this letter in France, the so-called Fieschi letter, which has been analysed ad nauseum. And I, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, it's too complicated to, to go into. Yeah, it's tricky, shall we say. But I, I'm certainly someone who's willing to give the, the new narrative more credence than I think colleagues and other modern writers have given, which is not to say that I follow it completely. Right. So as, as I said earlier, the, the headline of your feature is called The King of Folly, with reference to Roger Mortimer. And that gives us a sense of the period in which he and Isabella ruled England looked like. And it was ultimately undone, to some extent, by his arrogance. Can you tell us a little bit more about about that. How arrogant was he and what did that look like to those around him? Yeah, so I mean, we are talking here of somebody who repeats and actually 
extends the worst mistakes of the dispensers in that he spends three years from 1327 to 1330 feathering his own nest and that of his relatives and friends and also acting in ways which the baronial knightly community of England don't feel is in the interest of the country or their own king. And ultimately, of course, it's the king who brings him down. He never officially, as far as I can tell, joins the Royal Council, which is set up in 1327, but all power goes through him. Chronicle descriptions arrive that, you know, depict scenes at court where, you know, Roger doesn't allow the young king to rise before him. He always walks a few paces in front of him. He takes on this title in October 1328. He calls himself, effectively, he's ennobled as the Earl of March. And so he's Justice of Wales for most of the period from 1327 to 1330, which is a position his uncle had held. And of course, they used that to bring the resources of the principality under his auspices. His relatives also get important manners, important lands, but also just ceremonially, there is a position in sort of both in 1328 and 1329 where he uses big set-piece tournaments to marry his children off to other lords and also members of the royal family. So several of his... He, he's blessed with lots of children, lots of daughters. I think he has like 12, 14 children, many of whom are daughters. None of them end up in monasteries. They all get married off to leading earls or other leading aristocrats who with lands across Britain. He isn't simply a little Englander in this, in this regard. And he also, um, his military campaigning ends up being unsuccessful. So there is a campaign in Scotland in early 1327, which fails. The Scots give them the runaround. And ultimately, both Mortimer and Isabella then take the lead in arranging negotiations for a perpetual peace with Robert Bruce. So they are the ones, not Edward II, who actually return Scotland to its independence. Now, as you said, Roger's arrogance caught up with him and he was ejected by Edward II's son, Edward III. What event pushed Edward III into action? When did he think, I can't take this anymore, he's got to go? Okay, well, I'm not sure there's one single event because there's a famous letter which was sent to the Pope in 1329 which says, you know, any letter you get from England only believe it has my will if it has the phrase Pater Sancte, Holy Father, on it. Because obviously anything else coming from the royal government under Mortimer and Isabella's auspices wouldn't have that line. So from quite early days, he obviously wants to break the shackles. So Edward is born in 1312, so he's 18 in late 1330, so he's not reached his majority yet. But there's an accumulation. So obviously, you know, Mortimer getting the Earldom of March is an affront. Uh, the Earl of Kent, who is Edward II's younger half-brother and therefore the young king's uncle, he is, well, on a charitable explanation, he's entrapped by Roger Mortimer into believing that his brother is, is alive and he leads a campaign to try and discover where he is and it ends up with him being executed for treason in 1330. I think both Ian and Catherine Warner and others who've written on this recently have quite convincingly demonstrated that Edward Earl of Kent is not some fool. He is well-connected. He's not acting completely naively. There are others, including the Archbishop of York, who clearly believe that there may well be somebody who is the real Edward II out there. 
So ultimately, it keeps building and building, and it comes to a point where I think, and famously, there is a, there's it's, um, William Montague, who is the future Earl of Salisbury, who is one of Edward III's closest young friends, basically says, you know, it's time to act, sire, you know, better to eat the dog than to be eaten. And so there's a parliament call for Nottingham in October 1330, and Edward rounds up a group of his closest associates, and they, they kind of sneak into Nottingham Castle, which if anybody's been there knows, has got like sort of tunnels and caverns underneath it. And they manage to get up through a secret passageway into the castle and they spring a surprise on Mortimer and Isabella, who are supposedly having a meeting in Isabella's bedchamber. They arrest Roger Mortimer, killing a couple of his closest associates at the time. The Bishop of Lincoln supposedly, you know, escapes down a garderobe, a toilet shaft. And then Mortimer is quickly taken all the way down to the tower via Lancastrian manners just to make sure he's safely and nobody can spring him. And then effectively, once he's back in the tower, he's put in this enclosed cell, which is overlooked by Edward III's own chamber. He's kept there for about a month, can't escape again, and then he's executed after a parliamentary trial at Tyburn on the 29th of November, 1330. He isn't, as others were, beheaded and he isn't horrifically eviscerated as Hugh Spencer was. He's just hanged as a common criminal and then taken to the Greyfriars in London initially. And then we think, rather than being sent back to his ancestral home at Wigmore, his body appears to have been spirited away to Coventry, which I think, and others have argued, it's a town over which Isabella retained some influence. And so as far as we're concerned, as we know, the, the trail goes cold. Mortimer is not buried with his family. He's buried at a place at which Isabella, for, the, for who lives for another 25, 28 years, can pay private devotion to Roger, which, which suggests to me that their relationship wasn't simply political. But we'll never know. OK, I want to ask you a couple of questions about Roger's legacy. I mean, how did the period in which Roger and Isabella dominated England. How did that impact on Edward III's reign? People, of course, always associate Edward III's military successes with those of his grandfather, Edward I. He's supposedly obsessed with Edward I. Now, to me, and I know I'm a bit out on a limb here on this one, as a young, impressionable man brought up at court where Roger Mortimer is the leading military figure and who can actually, of his few contemporaries, speak of his military successes. Roger is also a man who loves a tournament. So in 1328, 1329, there are a series of tournaments all around the country. He actually brings the entire court to Wigmore at one point and holds royal court, holds a big tournament at Wigmore where, you know, there, there is gifts exchanged between the king and Roger Mortimer and his family. And this is where the king of folly comes from. Lots of, like his own son, Geoffrey, believes that, he, you know, he's gone away above himself. He's acting really arrogant. But to me, I, I just wonder whether some of Edward's obsession with theatricality, camaraderie, some of the games he plays, the round table, the Arthurianism of Edward III's court doesn't actually rather come from Roger Mortimer and Isabella, who, you know, they have this lending library supposedly at court where they're all the loaning romances to each other, rather than simply the tales of a man who Edward III would never have met, is his grandfather, this great figure, but whether actually, you know, a lot of Edward's personality and his interests are shaped not by somebody he didn't know, but by people he did know, however successful and however history has kind of 
written them as rapacious, arrogant, unsuccessful pair in their, during their minority. I may be wrong. That was Paul Dreibrer. You can read Paul's feature on Roger Mortimer in the August issue of BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.